Hello everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the Saga of World War II, a Cass's Belly Project. Sorry I missed a week there, but life got a little busy and I fell behind. So in this episode, we begin Act 2 of the series, meaning we'll have a couple of background episodes on Japan, and then the US, then dive back into the narrative. In this episode, I'll be using a lot of Chinese and Japanese names, so excuse any mispronunciations, especially when it comes to the Chinese. I'm going to try and use the older Wade Giles style of transliteration for Chinese, rather than pinyin, even though it's less faithful to actual Mandarin. The reason for this being that many of my sources are older and use the older convention, and I want to stay consistent. The only real exception to this rule are cases where the pinyin name is more familiar to an English speaker than the, than the old Wade Giles version. For example, Beijing is usually called Peking in older sources, but it's confusing to modern listeners, so it's just, I'd rather just use Beijing than Peking, if that makes sense. Anyway, I think the show is going to get a little more hectic now that the Pacific Theater has been introduced. We'll be bouncing back to Europe, then back to Asia, but I'll try to keep the narrative as straightforward as possible. For now, we shift our gaze toward the Far East to look at the rise of modern Japan and trace the nation's course from isolationist backwater to major imperial power in less than a century. So let's begin episode 15, Rising Sun. Frankly and definitely, there is danger ahead. Danger against which we must prepare. defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. In 1941, Japan was nearing the apex of a 70-year meteoric rise from fanatically isolationist hermit kingdom to imperial contender on the world stage. At 70 million, the population of Japan had more than doubled in that time, as had her ambitions. Japan was now armed with a modern army and navy, and had been recognized as one of the big five major powers in the Paris Peace Conference of 1919, alongside France, Britain, Italy, and the United States. She had overseas territorial possessions in China and Korea. But Japan's rise was not immaculate. Hundreds of thousands had perished in Japan's conquest of coastal China, and the government was resembling more and more a military junta ruled by competing cliques, as opposed to the constitutional monarchy that it aspired to. Japan was on a path to confrontation. Though it was not inevitable, the generals and admirals that effectively ran the country chose war to save face and preserve their national dignity. Had they chosen a less belligerent path, Japan's history would have followed a much less destructive course. By the second half of the 19th century, the great race for imperial possessions across the globe was drawing to an end. Most of the prime real estate had been grabbed and claimed, but a few smaller outposts remained, and China had not yet been pillaged. 
Japan, however, was still inward-looking and extremely isolationist. It was forbidden for a foreigner to even step foot on Japanese soil, and no Japanese person was allowed to leave the island and ever return. Japan had been this way for 250 years, since the end of the Sengoguchidai, the age of the country at war. Westerners first arrived in Japan in the 1540s, when Portuguese traders were blown off course while on voyage to China. Traders were soon followed by missionaries, and Francis Xavier himself arrived in 1549 to further the conversion of the southern island of Kyushu. As trade not only with Europe, but China increased, the wealth and power of the individual daimyo, essentially feudal lords, grew ever larger until the Onin War of 1467. This kicked off the Sengoguchidai, during which the ruling shogunate lost control of the daimyo, and the country descended into a century of war. Though the intensity of the conflict varied over the course of the period, at its peak, it was very chaotic. By roughly 1580, powerful clans were emerging and reunification of the country began. Though the emperor had technically remained sovereign throughout, he held very little secular power. He was more of a religious and cultural figurehead than an actual emperor in the Western fashion. The emperor was more like the head of state, whereas the shogun was the head of government with actual power. There are several dates used to mark the end of the Sengoguchidai, but the 1603 establishment of the Tokugawa shogunate seems like the best one to me. At that point, there was now one central authority ruling all of Japan, and that is when the country began to turn inward. Japanese society was already very conservative, and they were aware of how the Spanish had managed to Christianize and colonize the Philippines. They were loath to accept a similar fate, and were suspicious of priests and missionaries as European spies. In 1617, the shogunate began a radical de-Christianization project and ejected all priests from the country. Subsequently, they forced all converts to recant or be executed. Buddhism and Shinto folk religion were promoted by the state to bolster the moral authority of the emperor. Concurrently, the shogun closed Japan's borders. Foreign trade was outlawed, and emphasis was placed on studying and advancing Japanese culture. Japan would remain this way for the next two centuries, ruled by increasingly anachronistic feudal lords and samurai with no battles to fight. The samurai, sort of like the French nobility prior to the revolution, became more of a burden on society. They held ceremonial positions, but were forbidden from taking part in commercial activities. They were meant to study martial arts and literature and philosophy, but were more like many tyrants in their pockets of influence. They still followed their Bushido code, the way of the warrior, and felt entitled to the fruits of peasant laborers. This would begin to change in 1853 with the arrival of Commodore Perry at Japan's shores. When the Japanese men at court saw the black smoke pouring from the ship's bowels as it chugged against the wind, they knew something fundamental had changed. They realized that the world had continued on without them, and there was no way for them to compete with that kind of technology. The whole reason they had turned inward was to avoid the colonial carving knives of the West, but now that strategy was exposed for the fraud that it was. If they did not act immediately, instead of Americans demanding trade access, it would be British, French, or Russian gunboats demanding land and resources. Of course this change did not happen overnight. The Americans really only wanted to be able to use Japanese ports to expand their whaling fleet and provide coaling stations for the navy. But the trickle of foreigners eventually became a flood. The many conservatives in Japan's government wanted nothing more than to shut off the flow, especially the samurai and the daimyo. 
Their entire existence depended on Japan remaining an agricultural feudal society. So they rallied around the emperor, which ironically led to them losing their powers and influence. Now that real power was vested in the emperor, the shogun lost his influence and hold over the country. The resumption of imperial power to the newly dubbed Meiji Emperor, or Enlightened Ruler, has since been named the Meiji Restoration, and is pivotal to understanding how Japan completely overhauled its system of governance and societal structure. The minor nobles who had chaperoned the emperor back to power then sought to delegitimize the daimyo and strip them of their power. In 1871, the same year that Germany unified, the historic feudal holdings of the daimyo were abolished and the modern prefecture system established. In 1876, the samurai were essentially disbanded, and they were forbidden from wearing their ceremonial swords, and their legal class distinctions and privileges were revoked. Along with social changes, the government itself was reformed. The shogunate came to an end, and an imperial diet was created, which first seated in 1880. Though only the wealthiest could vote, universal male suffrage would eventually be introduced in 1925. Additionally, Universal primary education was implemented, and the government embarked on a massive infrastructure improvement plan. Factories, railways, mines, and all sorts of other industrial improvements were made on the government dime, then auctioned off to private hands. Many of the former samurai used this as an opportunity to remake themselves and their families by establishing zaibatsu, business empires like Mitsubishi and Yasuda that still exist today. Of course, all of this societal change did not happen without resistance. There were many who were deeply invested in the old ways and sought to block change to the point of violence. Fortunately, one of the reforms undertaken by the government was the creation of a national conscript army, which demanded three years of service from all military-aged males. In 1877, this new army, trained in Western drill and tactics, defeated the Satsuma Rebellion. Though the rebellion is idealized as a war between traditional samurai and western-style Japanese armies, the samurai were themselves armed with muskets in addition to their traditional swords. Regardless, the last gasp of the old ways was taken that year. As the government looked inward to improve, it also looked outward to find the best ideas the world had to offer. During the late 19th century, there was an outpouring of Japanese officials traveling the globe. They wanted to learn all they could about western business practices, government, technology, industry, and just about everything else they could get their hands on. The military was no exception. Naval officers were dispatched to the Royal Navy and Army officers to Germany. Soldiers adopted Western-style uniforms and weapons and practiced drill in the Prussian style. The Navy built new steam-powered battleships and learned tactics, techniques, and procedures from the Royal Navy, the premier naval service of the age. The newly formed military would soon leave Nippon's shores to expand Japan's influence. The islands of Kyushu, Shikoku, Honshu, and Hokkaido are all well suited to supporting an agricultural feudal civilization. The climate is temperate, rainfall is generous, and the soil is rich. It's no wonder the Japanese were able to close their borders for so long and not suffer from it. The islands are fairly self-sustaining. Japan's new, modern state needed more raw materials to sustain itself, though. The many mountains are not particularly blessed with metals or coal, and onshore oil is unheard of. So the Japanese looked abroad to sate their growing need for raw materials. The end of the 19th century saw China humiliated and pilfered by colonial powers, including Japan. Their first foray onto the international stage came in 1874, 
when they launched a punitive raid into Formosa for the abuse of Japanese merchants. This resulted in the Chinese paying the Japanese an indemnity. Japan's first real test of military strength would come two decades later, though, when they chose to challenge China for control of the Korean Peninsula. During that time, Korea was something of a satellite or client state of China. The Japanese wished to bring it into their sphere of influence, so they invaded and tore it away from the Chinese. In the peace settlement, they also demanded control of Formosa, which they won. By the turn of the 20th century, Japan had a growing overseas imperial domain. It was in the wake of the war for Korea that Japanese border disputes with Russia began. Now that Japan essentially controlled Manchuria, they had a direct border tension with the Russian Empire. This friction was heightened when Russia ganged up on Japan with the other Western powers to force them to relinquish control of the Laotung Peninsula in northern China to the Tsar. Japan would not soon forget this. In 1902, they entered into a naval pact with Great Britain and in 1904 decided to challenge the Russian Empire directly. In February 1904, the Japanese fleet launched a sneak attack on the Russian Pacific fleet at anchor in Port Arthur. The attack was devastating and crippled the Russian Pacific fleet. They then landed troops on the mainland and waited for Russian retaliation. As the Tsar ferried his troops across the thousands of miles of Trans-Siberian Railway to try and dislodge the Japanese soldiers, he dispatched his Baltic fleet to challenge the Japanese. After months of sailing, the Russian fleet finally met the Japanese at Tsushima Strait between Japan and Korea and was utterly annihilated. The defeat was humiliating for the Russians. They had been outclassed at sea and outfought on land by an upstart Asian power. There was nothing they could do about it. The Treaty of Portsmouth ended the war in 1905 and established Japan as a world power. Happy, but hardly satisfied with their acquisitions, the Japanese looked further abroad for new territories. In the near term, there were few easy pickings, but with the onset of the First World War, opportunity presented itself. The Japanese sided with the English and immediately declared war on Germany. They did little hard fighting, instead seizing the Marshalls, Carolines, and Marianas from the Germans, as well as the Chinese port of Tsingtao. As a curious aside to anyone who is familiar with Tsingtao beer, even though it's from China and has a Chinese-sounding name, Tsingtao is thoroughly German beer. It was created by English and German businessmen who lived in China in the early 20th century. After the war, Japan's formerly German possessions were legitimized by the Treaty of Versailles. The terms of the treaty forbade Japan from fortifying the islands, but they did so anyway. However, public appetite for expansion had mostly been sated. With growing economic prosperity and a newly educated citizenry, Japan liberalized somewhat during the 1910s and 20s, hence universal male suffrage passing in 1925. Political parties were active, and the government was modestly open and fair. Quietly, though, behind closed doors, a clique of highly insular and fanatical but influential officers were accruing power. They did not see the benefits of liberalization and wealth in the same light as their countrymen. These men would flex their influence and gain control of the government with the onset of the Great Depression. Like everywhere else in the world, Japan suffered the effects of rapid inflation and tightened spending. As the rest of the world had lost less money to purchase Japanese exports, and as those nations raised trade barriers to protect their domestic industries, Japan's economy shrank. They no longer had access to raw materials imported from abroad, which made the militarist solution to secure those resources through military means all the more palatable. In addition, the depression soured the Japanese to democracy 
and strengthened the authoritarian elements within the nation. Perhaps those militarist elements would have prevailed domestically, or perhaps not, but they had a tool that allowed them to act regardless, the Kwangtung army. Though technically under the command of the larger Japanese army, the officers of the Kwangtung army, based in northern Korea, exercised an enormous amount of autonomy. Their ability to act independently, despite protests from the central command, led to the plot to kill the Chinese warlord Chang So Ling. In 1928, a cabal of junior officers carried out a plot to murder the warlord and destabilize Manchuria. This, despite the fact that So Ling had been supported by the Japanese in the first place in order to create a malleable puppet. The Kwantung officers deemed him to be too independent, apparently. Following the assassination, the Japanese high command dispatched a general to rein in the rogue force, but he was distracted by geishas and boos when he arrived, so that the army could continue its machinations. They orchestrated a railway bombing on the Japanese side of the border and blamed it on the Chinese, initiating the Japanese conquest of Manchuria in the north of China. Now, before continuing, I want to talk a little bit about the political state of China in the early 20th century. China was hardly a unified state in 1928 when the Japanese incursion began. Instead, it was engulfed in what today is called the Jun Fashidai, the warlord era. Though it's a little beyond the scope of the podcast, the backwards policies of the Qing dynasty and malignant interference of Western colonialists had left China a rotting hulk by the end of the 19th century. Its institutions were corrupt and hollow, and regional strongmen controlled much of the country, in fact, if not in name. The seeds of the warlord era lay in the military organization of the Qing. Instead of creating a national army, the land forces of the empire were organized by region. It was more similar to a feudal system in that soldiers and officers were loyal to their region and generals, not to the central state. Each army was organized differently, had different standards, and there was no consistency between them. When the Xinhai Revolution erupted and overthrew the Qing, the country was ripe for the rise of warlords. A republican government was formed in 1912 and ruled from Beijing until 1925 when the nationalist Kuomintang moved the capital to Nanking. The actual history is much more complicated, though. Despite the fact that the government in Beijing and later Nanking was internationally recognized as the legitimate government, it held very little power outside of central Han China. Elsewhere, the warlords ruled. One of those warlords was Chang So Ling. He controlled Manchuria essentially as an independent state. When the Kwantung army orchestrated the Manchurian incident in 1931, the Japanese were able to quickly conquer all of Manchuria. They then launched an amphibious force to seize Shanghai. In early 1932, the Japanese established the puppet state of Manchukuo and had 30 million Chinese subjects. Though the West wasn't exactly pleased with Japanese aggression, it wasn't about to go out of its way to stop the Japanese empire either. The League officially scolded Japan, and in response, the Japanese left the League of Nations, casting off whatever moral inconveniences membership may have burdened them with. Remember, this was only four years after Japan had signed the Kellogg-Bryant Pact, that ill-fated effort to outlaw war. As an aside, I was pretty critical of Kellogg-Bryant in Episode 1, but since then, I've reconsidered my stance on it. It may have been more effective and forward-thinking than it's popularly given credit for. But that's a subject for another appendix, I think. For the next five years or so, after the occupation of Manchuria, the Sino-Japanese conflict froze. During that time, the Japanese husbanded their forces in northeastern China 
and the nationalist Chinese government, the Kuomintang, led by Chiang Kai-shek, consolidated the Chinese government on itself. Then, on July 7, 1937, the Marco Polo Bridge incident occurred. The incident was more or less a Japanese attempt to bait the Chinese into conflict. The Kwantung army had been patrolling into Chinese territory and had positioned troops outside of Beijing and Tianjin. On the night of July 7, 1937, one of those patrols got into a firefight with the Chinese garrison in Wanping. Though token attempts were made to defuse the incident, by the next morning, both sides were funneling reinforcements to the area. Thus began the Second Sino-Japanese War, and, essentially, the Second World War in Asia. Despite the fact that we usually mark the beginning of the war to be September 1st, 1939 in Europe, and December 7th, 1941 in the Pacific, the Japanese and Chinese were at war continuously from July 7th, 1937 onward. In a very real way, the war began that day. The Chinese would become an ally, and the Japanese were obviously one of the main belligerents, so one could make a very compelling and legitimate argument that the war started with the Marco Polo Bridge incident. In a little under six weeks, the Japanese had captured both Beijing and Tianjin and began to march on Nanking. The sort siege and subsequent fall of the city has since been dubbed the Rape of Nanking for the wanton barbarism and cruelty of the Japanese soldiers. I can't speak to whether the Japanese were exceptionally cruel in their looting of the city, but the presence of Westerners made it very well documented. As the Chinese capital, there were diplomats and missionaries from all the major Western powers present, and they made sure to record and report the atrocities committed. Beginning on December 13, 1937, and for a full six weeks afterward, the occupying Japanese army systematically raped, looted, pillaged, and burned. Murder hardly accounts for the extent of brutal death the Japanese dealt to the city. Even massacre scarcely touches on what they did. A pair of Japanese officers engaged in a contest to see who could kill a hundred men first, using only a sword. We know this because the Japanese press ran the story at home. On some days, 20,000 Chinese civilians were machine gunned down. And they may have been, lucky, been the lucky ones. Countless thousands were bayoneted to death for sport. Far from attempting to rein in their soldiers, the officers encouraged their men to behave as ghastly as possible. And of course, rape was rampant in the aftermath of the Japanese occupation. No woman or girl was safe from the Japanese soldiers. Youth nor aged decrepitude could save the targets of Japanese cruelty. Girls as young as five or six were not off limits, nor were the elderly. And this description only gives a brief glimpse of what occurred. The horrors inflicted on the Chinese population in Nanking are beyond what I feel comfortable even recounting. In the end, two to three hundred thousand Chinese civilians were killed in the rape of Nanking. These numbers were made even worse by the fact that the Kuomintang stopped civilians from evacuating the city. As the Japanese army approached, the Chinese army blocked the port and closed the exits to the city so no one could leave. The massacre attracted the ire of the international community, yet hardly any concrete remonstrations. For the most part, the Western powers were too preoccupied with Hitler's increasing belligerence next door to deal with a rising imperial power on the other side of the world. The French did nothing, unwilling to provoke the Japanese into seizing their colony in Indochina. The British caved to Japanese demands to close the Burma Road, a southern trade and resupply route for the Kuomintang. The United States alone took steps to hinder Japanese expansion. First, Congress passed the Two Ocean Navy Act, which authorized a multi-billion dollar naval expansion. 
Then, President Roosevelt restricted the export of scrap iron to Japan in an attempt to stifle Japan's voracious appetite for steel. In response, the Japanese entered into the Tripartite Pact with Italy and Germany. This triggered yet another round of economic and diplomatic sanctions by the United States. Japan was a rogue state, acting with impunity in Asia, and Roosevelt sought to exact a price on the Japanese. So he froze all Japanese assets in the United States, cut off steel and iron exports to Japan, and orchestrated an oil embargo on Japan with Great Britain and the Netherlands. The Japanese were enraged. Who were the British and American imperialists to punish Nippon for constructing the Greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere? They were simply building a pan-Asian state for all of the East Asian peoples. Of course, this line landed with the conquered Asian populations about as well as Hitler's empire landed with conquered Poles and Frenchmen. The Japanese people believed it, though, and at the prodding of their government, began to shun and purge Western culture from their empire. Japanese society was busy indoctrinating itself to believe that the whole of the Anglosphere was the enemy, and the Japanese warlords were angling to secure their grasp on government entirely. What was left of Japanese civil society did not wish to contend with the West directly. Instead, it sought to allow the greater European powers to ransack one another and simply pick from the scrap heap what they wished, as they had done from the First World War. With France and the Netherlands occupied, and Britain under siege, they could take their colonies in the Asia-Pacific region with ease. The warlords had different ideas, though. They wanted direct conflict with the West. They could not stand to lose face in the wake of American sanctions. Backing down was anathema to them, so they plotted to take over the government. In October of 1941, General Hideki Chojo replaced Prince Kanoye as head of government and set the country on the path to war. <laughs>